everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld. Welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review Podcast. And uh, I have a special guest. And you're going to really like him because unlike a lot of uh, the people I bring on the podcast, uh, I, I usually um, do probably too much of the talking. And uh, you're going to want to really hear from Dick Buchanan uh, more than from Lou Rosenfeld. So let me briefly introduce Dick. First of all, let me thank you for being on the show, Dick. Sure. Great to have you. Uh, you know, Dick is a, a professor of design, management, and innovation at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. Um, a, a lot of people also know that in the um, world of academia, he uh, helped get the uh, interaction design programs up and running at Carnegie Mellon, which is a hugely uh, influential uh, program in our field. Uh, he's also certainly done a fair amount of consulting. Every time I talk with him, he seems like he's on his way to some other part of the world or <laughs> help either build uh, education or do consulting. Uh, I know, Dick, that you've done work with the Australian taxation system and the U.S. Postal Service. The reason we're talking is I want people to know that you are going to be our closing keynoter uh, on June 15th at Enterprise UX. And that's our fourth edition of the conference. And we like to have um, uh, our conference end with big ideas, big picture thinking, big frameworks, <laughs> and, uh, no pressure, but what do, what do you have in mind for us uh, at Enterprise UX, Dick? Oh, uh, Lou, it's good to be with you. And I, I, I do have some big ideas, I hope, but I hope they'll be on a scale anyone can enjoy and appreciate. There've been two things on my mind in recent years. One is, the inability of design literature to talk about the principles that organize our work. And I think this has a lot of bearing for enterprise in general. We're having difficulty identifying and discussing the principles and values that we hold when we create the large systems and organizations that we work in. My, my work has moved progressively toward addressing that kind of issue. When I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was interested in graphic design and industrial design, and we did a lot of work to establish interaction design as a, as a field of work, a discipline, a way of thinking. But progressively, I've been concerned how we place interactions in bigger contexts, how we create the organizations and environments, the, uh, the systems really, for sustaining many interactions, not individual, but collective interactions. And so I moved from Carnegie Mellon to the Weatherhead School of Management precisely to explore what design means in larger organizational contexts, contexts like an enterprise of the scale that I think the conference focuses on. I'm very interested in those big organizations because they, they guide so much of how we live, but they're running into problems. I think they're running into difficulties. And, and here's my, my first concern then. The inability to talk about or identify the principles on which we organize our systems, platforms, and organizations. A tough thing to, to find out more than just a slogan, but actually an idea that, that organizes all of our work and that we can share with everyone in the enterprise. Now, this is no small challenge, I got to tell you, and you know that very well. How to get alignment within an enterprise is one of the toughest management chores we face, particularly when it's a distributed organization spread all around the world and uh, with many units and de devices and so forth. This is an area where design works uh, in the operations of a company. It also has to do with how design finds vision and purpose in organizations. In fact, the work I've done for the tax office and other places 
involve what one of my colleagues refers to as strategic conversations. Strategic conversations occur at the high level of an organization, and they're all about gaining insights into what the future might be. And I don't mean this as futurology, and I certainly don't mean it as analysis of events in the past. As my, as my colleague, uh, Tony Goldsby-Smith says, uh, analysis only tells us about the past. It does not tell us about the future. But building arguments for the future is what fourth order design is about. And that's what strategic conversations are about. So in, in a nutshell, I'm concerned that we don't know how to talk about these, these principles that organize us and help us to be together and do productive work that serves people. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Luke. Yeah, no, I saw, uh, that's a really interesting concept about kind of weaving principles into not only the conversations, but I imagine into the systems themselves. Um, I wonder a couple of things. One is, can we, um, are, do we is, is the problem that we don't see the principles as part of the systems? And so we, we jump ahead without uh, that kind of, uh, the, the important grounding that principles give us. And then the other question related to that is, I think in many cases, practically, we then have to go back and try to backfit our systems with principles. And is that even a, a good idea? Maybe it's better uh, late than never, but uh, does that really work practically? Well, those are both really good questions. And I, I would say that uh, with regard to the latter, um, Organizations are continually evolving. They're, they're protean. They, they keep changing and uh, unfolding in an evolution. So I don't think it's, it's a mistake to go back occasionally and revisit the vision that, or, organizing, that organizes the, or, the enterprise. I think that's important to do. But it's the method, the way we do it. And that's why I, my focus is no longer on first order graphic design or second order industrial design or even third order interaction design. I'm interested in what I call fourth order design, how we hold the conversations in the whole enterprise to discover those principles and values that we share and how to bring those forward. And, and so that to me is, is, a, is a core, is a key, keynote uh, feature of, of the new kinds of design practice. I gotta tell you that fourth order design is emerging in many places around the world. I just got back from a uh, conference, uh, actually a program, in Beijing, I was speaking to 30 CEOs of Chinese organizations and discussing, they asked me to talk about fourth order design and how that brings an, an organization to a flourishing state. A flourishing state is one where the principles are lived and felt. And, and it's just one example of how fourth order design has spread for us. Thank you for that answer. Uh, <laughs> I could speak at, at, at length on anything. For, <laughs> and it, uh, well, and I, I know that's going to be a big emphasis uh, in June. But, you, you, you know, I, I mean, one of the, I think, related very much to this is you're thinking on creativity and how an organization can really flourish and, and get beyond craft, I guess, toward fourth order design in the enterprise setting. Well, that's, that's exactly where I was going to go with this. You, you understand that very, very well. I, I've been annoyed for a number of years about the discussions of craft. I, I'm unhappy with the selling of the craft or the, of the process of design as a kind of commodity. And we, we teach our students, young students, what the, what the stages or steps are, and that's, that's all well and good. But I find that the, that the real work of design comes in the middle of all of that, unrecognized by formal methods. And so I, I've been turning more and more toward questions about creativity and why it is that designers 
and we, and by the way, I include managers as designers when they're really good. Uh, I'm curious, how do they create? And it's led me to a different understanding than I find in the literature of cognitive psychology, for instance. I, I, I love cognitive psychologists, they're fine. Some of my best friends. But uh, and, and an example is Herb, Herb Simon. I had a lot of regard for Herb Simon when I was at Carnegie Mellon. But I told him to his face that his work tended to rely on memory and not on what I would regard as significant creation. His, his students were amazed that he didn't blow up at me. Uh, he was very quiet and listened very carefully. So we became friends and talked over time. But, but here's where I've come to. I see that in our contemporary time, we talk about creativity in terms of innovation. But I don't think we understand what innovation might be. And worse than that, I think we don't understand the other ways that people have talked about creativity over the long sweep of, of human history. In fact, the way we talk about it today might be enhanced if we pursued a further, further series of themes. And here are the themes I'd like to talk about. I'm interested in invention. I'm interested in discovery. I am interested in innovation, but I'm also interested in intuition. And it's on this last that I have my, my biggest bones to pick with the cognitive psychologists. But, but for me, invention is, is an unusual moment in the mind. It's not, not caught up in experience. It's, it happens in the mind. It's where we take the categories that are given to us, things that we think we know and the meanings we've given. We somehow melt those categories down. We have to melt them down into a molten middle so that new ideas can come out. To me, creativity is a change of perception. We perceive things that are there, but that no one else can see. Invention comes when you have a, a categorical term um, and you find a way to melt its meaning to let new ideas come out. And I'll give you an example of this. HBR has a wonderful case study of Apple Computer. And I know we're all tired of hearing about Apple Computer, but, but bear with me on this. Because in the first, first page or two, they, the, the authors sail right past what is, I think, the key invention at Apple Computer. And, and it's one that it's so easy to overlook because it became so obviously true. But when it initially happened, it was not, not clear. When Stuart Brand thought about personal computing, that was something no one could make sense of. And, and when Jobs, and there are a few others in the Valley too that saw this, that somehow there's a difference between mainframe computing in big rooms and personal computing that can be held in the hand. And when you put those two categorical ideas together and melt them down, why not bring mainframes into a handheld device? What a cool idea, what a cool idea. You don't know whether it'll work, it may not make any sense, but that's an invention to see a new possibility. When you take that possibility, and then look to the outside world, to the world we experience, and say, what is there around us that we can, can shape and twist and turn to make this invention come to life? That's discovery. We discover, for instance, how to, uh, how to actually shape the device, how to do the software, how to deal with the, uh, the computer chips, all of those things. They'll become discoveries, and there are lots of discoveries that follow from a fundamental invention. So I'm interested in invention and discovery. But I'm also interested in this. What happens when we've made the discovery and worked out some of the materials? What happens when we begin to see, gosh, I can put all those little discoveries together into a story or an argument or a product that actually connects them together. We build the connections. 
when we build those connections, that's innovation to me. And I can give you a good example of this. There is a well-known uh, documentary by, in the uh, Human Experience series of PBS on Henry Ford. And the documentary is good because it begins with his invention of the relation of urban and rural communities, wanting to somehow merge those together through transportation. The discovery for him, for Ford, comes when he worked in the mechanics, as a mechanic in the shops, gradually putting together the pieces that might become the vehicles. But then there's a curious moment that occurs after he's created this and they've got a plant and making cars. It's all working with some degree of efficiency, but not perfectly. They go to Chicago. Somebody, somebody on his team, maybe it was Ford, I don't know. But the documentary is good on this. They show hog carcasses coming down an assembly line, an assembly line in a meatpacking factory. As the hog carcasses come down, they're on hooks. The carvers cut off the slices of meat that will then be packaged and sold. The connection of that assembly of the meats connected with automobile production, suddenly the spark from one thing goes to the other and somebody says, good Lord, there's a connection. Why don't we make an assembly line for automobiles? And of course he didn't begin with the whole automobile. He started with an assembly line for a motor or a part of a motor. But gradually the entire assembly line was created. This connected series of experiences and work that yielded what now is what became River Rouge, the great plant, uh, with all of its pro subsequent problems, but at least there was that. Now that's, that's the sequence of invention to discovery to innovation. But there's one further step. And the, the documentary is interesting in this, and we all know the story too, because at some point Ford said, I'm going to double the wages of the workers. Everyone in this enterprise is going to have twice as much money to take home. Now the documentary says this was a counterintuitive move. I don't think so. I think it was counterintuitive for everyone else. But for Ford, it was an intuition about the workings of the system, the economic system. And he realized that if you doubled the, the wages, you would make it more able for people to buy cars and participate in an economic system. That's an intuition. An intuition to me is when you see a connection, a connection that pops out of all that earlier work, and you say, that's, that's a principle. It could be the foundation of a whole new organization or a system, a platform, if you like, in today's language. And you see that, that principle that organizes. Intuition is the ability to grasp that. It does not come out of previous memories, although there is some, some understanding of that. I appreciate that work in cognitive science. But this intuition that gives us access to the whole enterprise in a whole different way. And, and that, to me, uh, has that infused itself through the, the lives of the workers became terribly significant. Today, and here's my point, today we are struggling to find the principles of our organizations. And to be honest, a lot of organizations have lost their principles. They're confused by them. They have slogans of do no evil and, oh, a bunch of emotional expressions. Those are not principles. Those are, you know, they want to be principles, but they're not. But I'm interested in how we take those, those moments of understanding of the bigger organization and how we build on those and bring it to the life of the organization so the organization flourishes. Right now, we're in great conflict over what are the algorithms of some of the digital platforms. Those are arguments about principles. And 
if we can't talk about them well, we're going to have difficulty. It's going to continue. We need to find a way to discuss principles and bring them to ground for us. I think that the alignment of an organization around the principles that we value, that makes the organization a flourishing organization. And by encouraging this kind of creativity I've been talking about, it makes it possible for the workers to, to flourish as well. Because my biggest, I gotta be honest about this. When I moved to the Weatherhead School of Management, it was reason for trepidation because a lot of people don't see business and organizations as a design enterprise. I see it as the biggest challenge we face in design. I think it's the big one. Uh, George, George Nelson once said, uh, we really don't understand the great influence that organizations have in our lives. Well, I think they do have great influence, but finding the principles that let us be in touch with those organizations, that's our great challenge. Does that make sense to you, Luke? It makes perfect sense to me. And uh, I, I think you're unlocking so much just in this uh, short podcast in terms of not only helping enterprises, which you know, obviously are, account for a huge portion of the global economy, uh, as well as uh, maybe the, most of the momentum in the global economy, uh, you know, to, to, to kind of reground around principles and at the same time, uh, you're really um, helping uh, people who come up in many cases as, as practitioners of one or, or another design craft to go beyond that. And I think that's really an important part of uh, Enterprise UX as a conference is we really are trying to help people kind of bring those two things together for designers and other people uh, who come along the design uh, journey, product managers and others to, um, to move beyond craft, to go to bigger places and to, uh, to help their organizations, those large enterprises, uh, flourish in new ways that are grounded in, in true principles. So I think your keynote is going to be spot on. Uh, I, I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Uh, this is just an off-the-cuff taste. Then, oh, my goodness, it's going to be amazing in June. Uh, I do hope people uh, consider joining us June 13th to 15th in Enterprise UX in San Francisco. The website is enterpriseux.net. And, again, our guest today, Dick Buchanan, will be our closing keynote. Dick, do you want to leave us with anything before we wrap it? I do, I do. <clears throat> what you've described is the reason I want to come to EUX myself, because this kind of discussion is terribly important for us, and you've set up a great organization to, to explore this. I want to show you a book that's been on my mind a lot, uh, Rules for a Flat World, and it's by Gillian K. Hadfield. And the subtitle is really interesting. It says, Why Humans Invented Law, and how to reinvent it for a complex global economy. I think it's a terrific book in what I call fourth order design. It's one of the biggest areas then. How do we think about new laws and regulations that might bring together the different components of, of the systems that are around us that need to be reworked and rethought? Anyway, I wanted to leave that with you as a, as a thing that could be read. It's well worth it. Well, I appreciate it. And actually, uh, it occurs to me that our opening keynote, or Lisa Welchman, is a renowned expert on digital governance. She did our, our book uh, uh, on the topic. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of what that's about are rules and, in effect, laws, policies, and so forth. So it might be a really nice symmetry uh, uh, to her opening keynote and yours in many respects. I think you're going at some similar concepts. Uh, maybe we'll call them fourth order design collectively for now. 
uh, but from radically different directions, at least I think so. And I'm really interested to hear uh, what other people think when they attend the conference and hear both keynotes. Dick Buchanan, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Lou.